This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Trust in the police isn't just about how officers behave on a call. It's also about how they classify the call itself. A thousand crime reports from the Denver Police Department were found to have errors recently, prompting an internal investigation. The story, first reported by CBS4, highlights the importance of accurate crime statistics and concerns if they're fudged. James Ponzi is chair of the criminology department at Regis University in Denver. He's done extensive research on crime stats in Denver and around the country. And Jim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So CBS4 reported that certain crimes were reclassified, including downgrading assaults, other violent crimes. You served in the DPD for 35 years, eventually retiring as a lieutenant. I guess, first off, why are crime stats so important? And not just for the community, but for the police too, right? Very important for for several reasons. One of them is the credibility of the the police department. And you get, uh, if if you're interested in solving crime and you're a police department, they're so important because if you aren't reporting accurately, you have no baseline to judge any programs by. So you may, how do you say we lowered crime or crime went up without a baseline? Or how do you say a particular means of fighting crime is working or not. Exactly. And then you have uh, the police sometimes get targeted by the media because uh, when somebody says police did something, it's generally all police and not just coming from uh, policy makers that, that dictate policy down to the people that actually work the street. That is to say, there are times when law enforcement is executing uh, what city leaders or even state leaders might be dictating to them. This is another means of judging whether those mandates are working in fighting crime. When, when did crime stats become so important? Uh, at what point did they really start to drive police decisions? I think I think the when when it really took hold was in New York when Bratton started his comp stat program and that was about oh mid 90s I'd say data driven policing if you right. will and, and and well we don't have time to go through the whole thing but that's basically where that started and many other departments across the country including Denver picked up this idea that you could determine a lot about how a police department was working by the uh, crime statistics in, in that jurisdiction. They did, and incorrectly, in my opinion. Incorrectly. How so? Just well, briefly. I, there's nothing wrong with crime mapping, but when it becomes your only method of, of evaluating how your department's doing and how your officers are doing, it falls short. So are there examples perhaps high profile uh, in Colorado and across the country of crime statistics being manipulated. Absolutely. Well, the, the the current investigation, the one that you alluded to when you first began the program, the what happened in Denver, the offense reports are what the police use to report crime. And they are there are people that count them, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So the these F- numbers matter beyond Denver for sure. A- absolutely. The departments are required to send them crime data. And then they do a national report on how crime works. Well, in Denver recently, the the 
offense reports were rewritten on letters to the detective and and the offense report were was removed. And these when, letters to detectives uh, are not reportable in the same way to the CBI and to the FBI. So they essentially don't show up. Exactly. They're gone. You'll never see them again because they're just in somebody's file. Has this happened historically in police departments in this country? Absolutely. And and traditionally, the way they do it, they find a category that is not counted, just like letters to the detective. They title them miscellaneous reports. They title them other reports. We had New Orleans PD call rapes Signal 21. Well, Signal 21s aren't counted by anybody either. So that was a good way of hiding a rising violent crime. Interesting. So Signal 21s, that was a, a sort of miscellaneous category. Yeah, just another name for something that they put them in so they wouldn't be counted. So what is a letter to the detective, just out of curiosity? It's basically, officers do that a lot. They may have something they encounter on the street that they want to let, uh, if it's burglary-related, robbery-related. We have detectives that handle all those different crimes, and they're follow-up people, basically. So they just write them a letter. It may be not enough to rise to the rate of an offense report yet. It's hmm. more informational. We reached out to the Denver Police Department for a comment. They sent this response. Chief Robert White is concerned and understands the necessity for accurate data. One of the most crucial elements of our relationship with the community is trust. Therefore, it is critical that we are transparent and accurate with the information we maintain and report. After seeing the initial anomalies, I was not comfortable, White says, with the integrity of the data, and I have ordered a thorough audit. I want to note that the department says the errors, these thousand or so reports, represent about 1% of crimes in 2017. They say this might also be a training issue. But if it's not, if this was done purposefully, what are the pressures police face that would lead them to change something like this? Well, the the original CompStat program in New York called for a, a monthly meeting where they had commanders report down there from all the individual districts or boroughs probably in New York. And uh, the, the way that it's skewed that is really upsetting to me, you might have a precinct that had a burglary. And then the next month they had two burglaries. Well, guess what? Now on the on, when you're called on the carpet, your crime's up 100%. There's a burglary. doubling of burglaries. Yeah, you, you, it's doubled. Well, it's, it, that can be happenstance. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a crime pattern there. And so police are under pressure uh, from their managers in that respect. And you say that that pressure could lead them to want to change crime statistics. And yet that is a true measure of crime. There was another burglary. Maybe that points to a pattern of crime in that neighborhood. Why is that so bad? Well, it's not bad. It's not bad unless it's abused. There's nothing wrong with crime mapping. But to give you an, an analogy that I think the the would be really easy to understand. Sure. You're a carpenter and you're building a home. You go out and you measure board feet, the number of board feet that you cut and the number of nails you pounded in. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're building a sound home. So if you extrapolate that to the police department, you may 
make a lot of arrests. Okay, you're busy, but does that mean the community feels safe? Do they trust you? That kind of thing. So that's just one part of the problem. You're saying data is just one part of the picture, and yet so much is riding on it. Did you ever change? Or or instead of filing an offense report, do one of these letters to detectives when you were with the DPD? You mean me personally? Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, I worked this. I worked the street for thirty three years, as from patrolman on up through lieutenant. So, so I'm just asking. Absolutely, point I've written them before. And you've written a letter to detective instead of filing one of those. Oh no, I'm sorry. Never did. Never that. did that. Okay. If if <laughs> it rose to the the level of a crime, I wrote the offense report. Fundamentally, uh, do you think that there are are neighborhoods in Denver? that are are perhaps less safe than the police are saying? Well, it's a complicated issue. If you're talking about just statistics, crime statistics, I don't see how you'd know whether they were less safe or not if the crime statistics aren't accurate. So uh, there are neighborhoods that are less safe and... um, the the idea is to find where the where the patterns are and put extra police in there to try to help try to try to but often what it does is just move them somewhere else but i think what you're saying is that without the accurate data it's hard to say absolutely impossible to say a quick example in chicago they changed they, they threw their stats away every 3 months and started over now how do you get a baseline how do you know whether crime's up or down for the year, or et cetera, et cetera. Jim, very briefly, is there anything you'd recommend so that the pressure to change crime statistics, if indeed that is found to be what happened here, uh, that that pressure is reduced? Absolutely. One of the things I already talked about, that's quit relying on numbers as as a, a means to raid everybody. And if you pull up Denver's website and their commanders, their stats are listed right next to them. It's very important in Denver. Criminologist George Kelling said measuring performance solely on crime statistics simply ignores consequential values like justice, integrity, fear reduction, citizen satisfaction, and protection. Thank you for being with us. Appreciate your perspective. Thanks for the... Jim Fonzi, Associate Professor and Chair of Criminology at Regis University in Denver. The Denver Police Department says its investigation into the data is being watched by the city's independent monitor. They don't know yet when the investigation will be finished. The headline made me do a double take. An African political leader died in a plane crash in northern New Mexico near the Colorado border. Roy Bennett's recent death seems as unusual as his life in Zimbabwe. And I wanted to know more from Andrew Meldrum. He's Africa editor for the AP. He lived in Zimbabwe for 23 years. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Ryan. Thanks. I understand you got to know Roy Bennett during his decades uh, in Zimbabwe and your years reporting there. Uh, What was your reaction earlier this month when you found out that he died? Oh, I, I was, I, I really, you know, I'm a newsman and I'm used to seeing a lot of things, but when I saw that, uh, that he died in a helicopter crash, I was just really sad, uh, because he's somebody that I, I knew, I knew both Roy and his wife, Heather, uh, quite well over the years. 
and uh, and uh, they were very very likable figures and uh, very unique in the Zimbabwean context. And uh, I, I felt sad, and and also I felt uh, that it, it just it it, it it you know took some very vital figures out of Zimbabwe just at a time when. Uh, you know, the, 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 the country is changing. Yeah, this is a really pivotal time for that country because Zimbabwe had for so long been ruled by a really brutal dictator, Robert Mugabe. He had lorded over the country since its independence in 1980, and I think uh, just ended his tenure last year. So the question of the future of Zimbabwe is uh, is ever present here. And what was Roy Bennett's role in well, I suppose the Mugabe regime being a voice of opposition for it, but also potentially in the future of that country. Right. Um, you know, you said uh, Mugabe ended his tenure. Actually, Mugabe was forced from uh, office and, and, and stepped down after he was put under house arrest by the army. Um, so, I mean, it was, uh, you know, quite an, quite an interesting, and that was only, that just happened in November, yeah. uh, ending a, a long reign uh in, in power uh, since 1980, and Mugabe himself was 93 years old. Um, and, and look, he, I mean, and I don't mean to speak to about him in the past tense, he's still alive. Um, and Roy Bennett, uh, and Mugabe ran Zimbabwe with an iron hand, and Roy Bennett was known as the, the, the sharpest thorn in Mugabe's side. He was, um, uh, uh, when Robert Mugabe was seizing white-owned farms, um, and 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 kind of excoriating white farmers as uh, the bad guy, uh, the bad guys in Zimbabwe. Roy Bennett was immensely popular with black, ordinary black Zimbabweans. He spoke fluent, earthy, funny Shona, and uh, he had a way of of, of captivating crowds of, uh, of 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 you know ordinary black Zimbabweans, rural peasant black Zimbabweans. And he could speak to them, and 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 they really uh, took to him. And he was elected by a rural black constituency uh, at the same time that Robert Mugabe was saying that uh, white farmers were, you know, the, the cause of all of Zimbabwe's problems. So he really kind of stuck out as a, a um, you know, a, as I say, a thorn in the side of Robert Mugabe. And I'll note here that Roy Bennett was a white farmer, just to be clear. And so you talk about it being unusual for someone like that to have garnered such support among rural black folks in Zimbabwe. So here's Roy Bennett speaking in the Shona language with a Zimbabwean TV host. <laughs> So you say that he was a thorn in Mugabe's side, perhaps the sharpest one that resulted in his arrest and imprisonment for a time in Zimbabwe. Uh, When they died, Bennett and his wife were living in South Africa, I understand he was among thousands of white farmers who'd had their land seized by Mugabe back in the early 2000s. Uh, after that, the country's agricultural sector really tanked. Is that why Bennett left Zimbabwe? Well, uh, yes, he he was a successful uh, coffee farmer in uh, the uh, the mountains of eastern Zimbabwe. It was a beautiful farm, which I had visited after it was seized. 
Um, and uh, the reason he left Zimbabwe is he, he had become, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a kind of key and uh, uh, vital um, political leader in Zimbabwe's opposition uh, party, the Movement for Democratic Change. Um, and he was a member of parliament, and in parliament he uh, got into a scuffle uh, with the, the then uh, Minister of Justice, um, and um, actually he, he shoved the minister, and the minister fell to the ground. Roy was found guilty of assault uh, under a special parliamentary uh, inquiry, and he was sentenced to 18 months in prison, uh, of which he spent, I think it was eight or nine months in prison uh, in Zimbabwe. Uh, he emerged, he was a, a burly fellow. He emerged rail thin and terribly sunburned um, and uh, spoke of, of uh, really the, the hardships, not that he suffered, but of the hardships of other people suffered uh, in jail. He said people uh, starved to death in their cells uh, nearby him. He said he could hear people being tortured, the screams of people being tortured, mm-hmm. uh, and he said he would uh, speak out against that. And I can understand why that would be a climate you wouldn't want to stay in and why he left Zimbabwe. Uh, the New York Times reported... Well, he, was, he was... Sorry. Um, he, he was actually arrested again after uh, that. Uh, he was then... Uh, uh, charges were pressed and he was acquitted. But then after he received threats, he decided to leave the country. And he did go to South Africa... Uh, but actually, I have just spoken to some friends of his, and he then uh, went to Zambia and was uh, starting a new farm from scratch in Zambia. And that's when he, what he was doing uh, uh, when, uh, you know, when he, he was killed by the helicopter crash. Yes, and this was uh, in New Mexico, just at the Colorado border. In New Mexico. Yeah, the New York right. Times reported that he'd spent time repeatedly in Colorado and that he and his wife were traveling in New Mexico with a friend in that helicopter. Do you know if his travel here was related to his farming at all? Well, uh, his friend is uh, Charles Bennett III, uh, who had a ranch uh, right uh, on the uh, New Mexico-Colorado border. And uh, uh, Roy uh, had uh, some health problems, and uh, uh, Bennett had helped him get uh, medical care uh, in uh, the United States. And so apparently he had gone for a checkup um, and uh, then was with Bennett going to Bennett's ranch uh, uh, in Bennett's helicopter when, I'm sorry, uh, Burnett's. He was visiting Burnett's ranch and going in Burnett's uh, helicopter when it crashed. There is not a suspicion of foul play, I'll say, in his death. Um, it's true that Roy Bennett stayed active in Zimbabwean politics even from afar. He went to other countries, particularly English-speaking ones, to talk about what was happening in Zimbabwe and how it could move towards a real democracy. So fundamentally, Andrew Meldrum, uh, Africa editor for the AP, does his death here in the West, uh, is it a loss of opportunity for Zimbabwe? Do you imagine that he would have gotten involved in the new politics there? I think it was it, 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 it's a tantalizing uh, possibility. I think he was Roy was impassioned uh, about Zimbabwe's politics. I remember seeing him a, a few years ago here in South Africa, where, as you say, he traveled to South Africa, to Britain, to the United States, where he spoke about uh, Zimbabwe's issues. And I remember seeing him and a a mutual friend said, Roy, you know, haven't you suffered enough? Hasn't this been enough? Don't you want to just give up politics and just 
do something else. And Roy was like, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I, uh, this is my role. This is what I have to do. This is what I want to do. And his wife was um, also completely committed uh, to, to, that, uh, to that political role. Um, and so I, I can't help but think that uh, with Robert Mugabe uh, losing power and with a new uh, government in Zimbabwe, that he wouldn't, that, that he would, that Roy Bennett would have wanted to go in and try and play a role, a, a constructive role uh, in the new, uh, in the new uh, Zimbabwe. That is Andrew Meldrum, acting Africa editor for the Associated Press, author of a book as well about Zimbabwe. And we talked about opposition leader Roy Bennett, who reportedly owned land in Colorado until he died last month in a this month in a helicopter crash near the New Mexico border. Memorial services for Bennett are also being planned in three countries. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Former Time correspondent Jay Newton-Small used to cover politics and foreign policy. Now she writes the life stories of people with dementia. Her company, Memory Well, grew out of her own experience caring for her father. And this work recently took her to a Fort Collins senior home where she stayed for several days. Newton-Small joins us from Washington, D.C. Jay, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me on. You cared for your father who had dementia after your mother died. She'd been his main caregiver. And you had an experience as you were moving him into long-term care that planted the seed for this idea memory well. What happened? Well, Ryan, I moved when I moved him into the community, they asked me to fill out this 20-page questionnaire about his life. And I was sitting there thinking, A, no one's ever going to be able to read my handwriting. I'm a professional writer, and I know I have terrible handwriting. Um, And B, the questions were really hard. I mean, I I write for Time magazine. I challenge anybody to describe their parents' 50-year marriage in four lines. Um, And C, who was ever going to read and remember 20 pages of handwritten data points for the 150 residents that were in that particular community? So um, I handed in the form blank and I said, look, I'm a writer. I think it's easier for me and easier for you if you just let me write down a story for you. And they were like, uh, OK, you're weird, but sure. <laughs> uh, and this was an encapsulation of who your father was and, and how long was what you wrote? The original story was about 900 words, I think. It's, it's actually up on our website at memorywell.com if you look at stories. Um, and it was, you know, I wrote it down. It was a Word document. I printed it out. I handed it out to his caregivers and said, look, this is my dad. And um, they actually loved it. They remembered it. They told each other about it. Um, two of his caregivers were Ethiopian, and they'd had no idea that my dad had actually lived in Ethiopia for four years early on in his career with the United Nations. And um, they became his champions. They would sit for hours and show him their own personal family photos of Ethiopia and Africa. And dad loved it because he remembered Africa from his early 20s, even if he didn't remember last week. So did you uh, write that story from your own memory of your father? Was it that you were able to ask him questions in his more lucid moments? And I suppose I, I apply that question to memory well in general, because you now have a network of journalists who 
along with you, are writing these stories for folks in senior communities. How do they how do they build that narrative? Sure. So we have a network of about 450 writers, and um, I would say about 85% of our stories comes from interviewing family members. Um, Oftentimes, by the time you're putting a loved one into memory care, um, they're probably not able to tell their own stories. Mm -hmm. Um, That said, the the community where I was uh, in Fort Collins, um, the crossings communities for Brookdale, those are people with milder cognitive impairment. And the majority of folks who I interviewed there actually could tell their own stories. And so there's about that 15% that still are pretty savvy. And and look, a lot of people think, oh my gosh, gosh, Alzheimer's is a death sentence. And the fact of the matter is it's not. I mean, my father lived for 10 years before he really began to decline. And, you know, it was really the last five years of his life that was that was harder on us. Um, and the first 10 were great. Um, so there are oftentimes people can tell their own stories. Um, and, and, you know, and, but the where memorial works is often mostly at the intersection of people entering care. And unfortunately, by then, they often can't tell their own stories. Fundamentally, it's my sense that you believe this can improve care, that if caregivers, if nurses, if the staff know a little something about the patients in a straightforward way, that it can be transformational. Why do you think that is? And do you have any proof to say that's the case? Well, I'm definitely not the only one to say that it is. Um, there are studies that show that uh, life storytelling, reminiscence therapy, uh, not only can improve empathy between caregivers and, and the ones for which they're caring, but also um, between family members and those living with Alzheimer's dementia. It can help reduce depression. It can even help increase dexterity in some in some studies. Um, and and look, we we're working. What brought me to to Fort Collins was Brookdale Senior Living, which we're piloting with them, and and they are the largest provider of senior care in America. And Brookdale, like many other communities in the United States, has their own version of this. They have these questionnaires because they know that it's important to collect this life information. um, And they know that it's important that their residents and their caregivers know each other because if you don't know each other, then then that whole experience of care is very isolating and and much harder. You say that uh, this improved dexterity? What What do you mean by that? Well, so one of the things you want to be uh, sure to do is that when you, um, for those living with Alzheimer's dementia, you um, oftentimes lose balance, um, which is a common side effect of uh, of the diseases. And so it's been shown that telling life stories that and engaging in reminiscence therapy has actually, in some cases, helped improve those in certain exercises, um, improving their dexterity, improving their ability to write uh, and to do art. Goodness. Well, you met uh, many of the residents at that Brookdale facility in Fort Collins, and you wrote up the stories of a few, including one man named Len. I'm just going to read part of the story you wrote. Len loved to fix up old cars, and at 14, he was drag racing his Pontiac GTO across Michigan and Ohio. It was those memories of his minor delinquency and how he got through it that led him to a storied career in special education. Quoting, those kids always seem to me to be the underdog, says Len. There was a lot of fulfillment to see how much these kids grew and appreciated what they were offered and to be valued by a team of teachers. How difficult is it to write these? Well, I actually find it incredibly fulfilling. And, and to be honest, I think um, probably more fulfilling than covering politics these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really, you know... 
I look at this as a generation that otherwise their stories would be lost. And we learn so much from them. It's so special to be able to gather their lives and to tell these stories and to help families tell, you know, all of our stories are hosted digitally and family members can add their own anecdotes and photos and music and videos and build out a whole timeline of their lives. And um, I did that particularly because when I used to visit my dad, um, I used to say, hey, dad, how old are we today? And if he said 30, I would play him the Beatles. And if he said 50, then it would be, you know, uh, MASH and uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So it's important, it, they, as they say in Alzheimer's, to meet that person where they are. And so the timeline gives um, caregivers the ability to do exactly that. Um but to get back to the stories, I just find it incredibly fulfilling. And I think that when I write for Time magazine, I write about the 1% um, for an audience of millions. When I write for Memory Well, I invert that model and I write about the 99%, particularly those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. But, you know, seniors as a whole, I think that there's it's important to capture these stories. And um, and it may be for an audience of just 20 people, 30 people, but it has a much more profound impact on their life to be able to, to keep those memories for future generations. That is Jay Newton Small, co-founder of Memory Well, a biography service in which former journalists write up the life stories of people living with dementia. You can read the story Newton Small wrote about her father at CPR.org. We have reviewed internal RTD safety data, and there's cause for concern when it comes to the agency's light rail system. Operators in those trains are making more mistakes. CPR's Nathaniel Miner spoke with host Mike Lamp. So, Nate, you took a look at signals that control train traffic in the system. Can you describe what those are? Sure. These are, to an RTD light rail operator, what a stop-and-go light is to a driver in a car. RTD signals are either red, yellow, green, or downtown where they're next to car traffic, operators see these white lines. And you can see these lights when you're a passenger waiting at the train station. Sure, sure. Yes, exactly. Basically, they just keep trains clear of each other and of street traffic. So I got data via an open records request on how often train operators go through these signals when they should stop. Oh, and what does that data show? It shows that train operators are violating these signals a lot more lately. Back in 2010, for example, there were eight violations for that entire year. And last year, 2017, there were nearly 120. That's a really big jump. I should say that there are varying degrees of seriousness to these violations. The vast majority are pretty mundane, like an operator stopping a little too late. But they can be super dangerous, too. car was squished between the light rail train and the pole, Last summer, for instance, a light rail train collided with a Toyota Prius in downtown Denver. RTD's data confirms that the operator violated one of these signals. No one died, but the Prius was completely totaled. Well, do we know why there has been such an increase? So the obvious answer is that there's just more traffic all around. More trains, more cars. RTD opened two major new lines in the last five years. The W line to Golden and the R line through Aurora. So there are more opportunities to make mistakes. Aaron Betcher with the union representing train operators says there's a few specific bottlenecks in the system that he's worried about. One is the section between I-25 and Broadway and downtown, and that's where five lines converge. So we have a lot of trains in a tiny box trying to move as fast as we can. 
RTD officials say they take every violation seriously. Spokesman Scott Reed says when you compare how many violations there are versus how many signals an operator passes each day, they're doing pretty well. And it comes out to about four one-hundredths of one percent of all of the signal interactions that they have result in a red light violation, Um, but that is still too many. We want to get to zero, and that is exactly what we are focusing upon. So what is RTD doing to address these violations? So operators now have to physically point to each signal and say out loud whether it's green, yellow, or red. And now there are also these audible little chirps that alert operators of red signals. The operators say they're really annoying, but RTD says they help keep operators alert. Does the information that you found say anything about who is committing the most violations? Yes, it does. And mostly it's operators who don't have much experience, less than five years. And most violations happen when operators are working a lot of overtime, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. That's a lot of overtime. Why is it that uh, train operators are working so much? RTD and the union both say there are these hiring and retention problems right now. Operators make decent money. They start at $17, $18 an hour. But the hours are pretty rough, early mornings and late nights. RTD and the union say they need about 60 new operators. And that shortage has put a lot of pressure on the operators that are still there. They're working six or seven days a week in some cases. Uh, Betcher with the union says even bathroom breaks are hard to come by. I've known operators who were trying to finish out their time to get to their pension, who wear adult diapers. Why do we have operators out there soiling themselves in the 21st century? So basically, RTD hasn't been able to retain enough drivers to keep up with their new lines. And what is RTD doing about that? They're offering pay bumps for operators who work overtime or split shifts, and new operators are given a $2,000 signing bonus as well. Um, RTD and the union are negotiating a new contract right now. The agency wants more control over scheduling, and the union says it wants to protect their most experienced drivers. Well, Nate, thanks a lot. Thanks, Mike. CPR's Nathaniel Miner speaking with Mike Lamp about a review of RTD safety data. And you can dive deeper at CPR.org. Alpine skiing debuted in the Olympics in 1936 at the Winter Games in Garmisch, Germany. And a Colorado man led the U.S. team, Dick Durrance. He went on to become a major force in skiing. He won 17 national championships, developed new ski technology, and put Aspen on the map as a destination ski resort. Ahead of the Winter Games in South Korea, we have his eldest son and namesake, Dick Durrance Jr., on the line. And Dick, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Coincidentally, your dad's family had lived in Garmisch when he was a teen, and so he'd learned to ski there. What did he do when he was named to the 36 Olympic team? <laughs> he, 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 he proposed to his uh, college professors that he go to Munich, and he was an art major, and he studied art in music, uh, art in Munich. <laughs> well, of course, he spent the fall in Garmisch preparing for the Olympics. <laughs> I see. So he had his uh, eye both on academia and on the slopes. What, what do you think made him a great? Well, great he's had his eye. He had his eyes on the slopes. On the sl- <laughs> I don't think he got to Munich much. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think made him a great ski racer? Uh, two things. One uh, is that. Uh, he was a, a, a wonderful natural athlete. He was, you know, he was only about five seven, but extremely strong, um, very powerful legs, uh, 
and uh, very, very light on his feet. And so when he, uh, when they got to Garmisch in 1927, it, he and his brother Jack immediately took up skiing. Um, and Dad just had a natural uh, gift for it. Um, and in fact, uh, the the gift showed up even way late in life. In his 80s, we would be the family would get together once a year to go skiing, and and Dad would would. Um, We'd be at Buttermilk, you know, just on little slopes. He was in his mid-80s. And you'd just see him there moving his feet, trying to get the ski flatter so he could go faster and faster. (laughs) (laughs) He had a really good eye for the line down the hill, I understand. Yes, that's correct. He he, he had a very analytic mind and and, kind of like Michaela Schiffer now. He really thought about it a lot. And and, and he had – he could do things that other people couldn't do and they would think he was out of his mind taking chances. He knew he could do it and he would do it. He wasn't so much interested in big, wide turns as going uh, straight down if he could. And I want you to tell me about the Dipsy Doodle. Okay. Um, well, when he, when he was uh, uh, developing Alta, he was the general manager and ran the ski school. Uh, and Alta has all these very steep chutes and, and uh, he couldn't go straight down them and he couldn't do big turns. And so he figured out a way where he could basically ski straight down the fall line and step from foot to foot, from left to right to left to right and just bounce down doing kind of half turns. And it's a, it's a terrific, great way to ski steep slopes and ski steep slopes in trees. Hmm. Well, back to those first uh, Olympics in which alpine skiing were featured, um, there was an event uh, that was a sort of combined uh, downhill and slalom, uh, downhill, a high-speed race over a long course, slalom involving short, fast turns. And despite being one of the world's best ski racers, your dad came in 10th overall. What what happened? Well, um, it, it was in the slalom. I mean, the downhill and slalom are two different events. Yeah. And in the, in the slalom, uh, he... He he bumped a flag, and uh, but he he knew he got his feet through the gate. But um, the his his manager didn't want to protest it, so they 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 just couldn't do anything about it. He would have finished. He had the third fastest time, um, and in the downhill, uh, he missed the wax. You know they didn't have you know techies traveling with them in those days. Each racer did his own wax, and he just missed the wax. He missed it, you know, the, the wax. wax. It, 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 he had just had the wrong wax. He had the, – the, in the middle of the course, there was a long flat area that got warmed up more than he thought it would. And so his skis just slowed way down. Oh. Um, so it's too bad. I understand. But the, it, it, interesting, the next week, the next week, Ryan, he won the downhill at Sestrier against the same guys. So he was, they knew and he knew that they were on the same level. I understand he talked very little about the Nazi presence during those 36 games. Is that right? I never said a word to me. Not one word. Hmm. Ever. Your dad kept ski racing uh, after the 36 Olympics. And because of his prowess, there's a mountain in Sun Valley, Idaho, named for him, Durrance Peak. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a, I'll tell the story as quickly as I can. Okay. So Abram <laughs> Harriman had just opened Sun Valley. And he wanted to have a big race to put Sun Valley on the map in the U.S. and in the European mind. So he and worked with Dad to get invite as many of the top European racers as were willing to come. And, and Averill Harum flew them over to the United States so that he'd have a world-class 
uh, field for the first Harriman Cup race. Which, and so they got there and uh, dad won the slalom and then dad won the downhill. And Averill was ecstatic because he had an American who had beaten the best in the world. <laughs> uh, and so he named, he named uh, one of the peaks there, one of the mountains that they skied on, uh, Durance Mountain. Is it true that your dad would bathe you as a kid in the cup that he won? Well, the, 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 to win the cup, you had to win three out of four years. Okay, and it was a huge cup, and that that way he won, and that's what Herman did to try and get guys to keep coming back. Ah. So Dad won it the first year. Dad won it the second year. Third year he was courting my mom, and he did not win it. <laughs> he was distracted. <laughs> but the fourth year he knew if he could just win it, that that he would retire that huge silver cup, which was big enough for bathe Davy and I. So they were racing on the Warm Springs Trail, which Dad had pointed out to Averill and said that would be a good downhill, and Averill said, "Well, go go cut it." So dad had supervised the, the, the cutting of the now famous Warm Springs Trail. Well, in the race, he jumped into a steep pitch called the Stylehong that shot you straight down a wall and then into a sharp left turn into the Warm Springs. Well, it, it, and he didn't anticipate it was going to be so soft. So he ended up getting shot straight out. And he, there was no way he could turn now. He's going too fast. Oh, goodness. So he got to the bottom and he, he just couldn't make it. He knew he wasn't going to make it. And he went up the wall and sort of bounced through some small trees, bouncing off him. But he managed to stay on his feet. And he says, well, you're one lucky son of a gun. You might as well run the rest of it straight. So he ran the rest of it straight. And at the last turn, hard right, he couldn't make it. And he hit a hot dog stand. And he <laughs> got up and got across the finish line. And he still won the downhill and the cup. <laughs> he still won. You're listening to Colorado <laughs> yeah. Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And... Ahead of the Winter Games in South Korea, we're digging into a bit of Olympic and generally Colorado ski history with Dick Durrance Jr. of Carbondale, talking about his dad, the legendary skier Dick Durrance, uh, who led Team USA in the first alpine skiing at the Olympics in 1936. And as uh, you say, he uh, played a role as well in getting Alta up and running and I understand they did everything, your parents, from installing the T-bar lift to knitting sweaters for ski school instructors. And while he was there in Utah, your dad trained soldiers to ski. Uh, these were the skiing troops <laughs> that eventually became the famed 10th Mountain Division. What, what stories did your dad tell about training those uh, paratroopers to ski? Well, well, the, the way it came about is that Minnie Dole, who, who came up with the idea of the 10th Mountain Division and sold it in Washington. Yeah. Uh, was the founder of the ski company, of the ski patrol. And so he knew about that. And he called dad up and said, Dick, we're trying to decide if we want to train soldiers to ski or train skiers to shoot. Okay. And so I'm going to send you a company of men and I want you to see if you can train them to ski. Well, and this is before safety binding. So, you know. Um, and so they got these guys. They were neophytes. And after a couple of months, about a third of them had broken their legs. And uh, dad reported back and said, Minnie, you better start looking for skiers. <laughs> Train them to shoot. <laughs> and that's why so many of the great skiers uh, of the time ended up in the 10th Mountain Division. That is, it was easier to teach the skiers to shoot than these shooters to Absolutely. ski. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> your, your parents didn't stay in Utah, though. They moved to, first to Seattle, where he worked at Boeing. And when the war ended in 45, they moved to Denver. And your dad started designing skis for a ski manufacturer called Thor Griswold. Um, and Gros Groswold. Gr yeah. Groswold, pardon me. Oh, yeah. the, the skis themselves were the Dick Durrance skis. What, what was special yeah. about them? 
Well, what was special is that dad wanted skiing to be easy for people. And part that came out of his experience in Alta, I think. Um, and so he, he suggested that Thor make a very soft ski, much softer than they were making them. Huh. And it did make it easier to ski. And so that became the Dick Durant ski. They were made out of hickory, I think. I think so, yeah. Well, the mountains eventually called to your parents again. Uh, after a couple of years, they moved to Aspen to help turn that fledgling resort into a real destination. Too bad that didn't work out, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah right. <laughs> your father was a, a major force in, in making that happen. He was known for rethinking how trails were cut, both for recreational skiers and for racers. Tell us about some of those groundbreaking trail designs at Aspen. Well, what, what he did is, is, is um, he was, he, it, because they had just secured the world championships for 1950, he was cutting new trails on the mountain and he wanted to cut some big wide ones so that they could have big GS races. And so that the grand slalom. Recreational ski, uh, giant slalom. Right? Giant slalom. Pardon um, me. Oh God. Yeah, the the yeah. skiers in the audience are rolling their eyes at me they, now. They, they, oh, they, they must've just had a heart attack. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so he made the big wide open trail like Ruthie's run. Um, and, um, uh, so that the recreational skiers could have room to, to play because prior to that, all the trails were very narrow. Uh, people were afraid the wind would mess it up, but the, the, the wind in Aspen is not a serious factor. And, and so that, that sort of opened up the whole idea, big open skiing. Uh, These are some of my favorite runs, I have to say. I, I, unlike yeah, your father, you. I'm, I'm a little more interested in the big wide turns, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. y- your dad was also well-known as a ski photographer and filmmaker. I'll add that you seem to have inherited that gene because you're an award-winning photographer in your own right. And of the dozens of film projects that uh, Dick Durant Sr. was involved in, uh, perhaps the best one is, uh, or the best known, is Ski Champs. Uh, what do you know about the making of that? Well, the, 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 once Dad had gotten the world championships there, and once he'd gotten the mountain prepared as the general manager, and uh, once things were underway, he wanted to film the races. He loved photography. He'd been a photographer since he was in college and loved to take pictures and loved to make films. And so he got together with a with a, a, a businessman, and the two of them put together a team to film the, the world championships. So, uh, so he did film them. And this is, you know, mind you, he... He had carved the trails. He was the general manager. He was the chief of race. And he was filming this film. I don't know how he did it. <laughs> I don't either. But anyway, yeah. But anyway, he he did a film, and it really was breaking ground. He he skied part of the downhill carrying the camera, which nobody had ever really done before. Um, and he had, you know, he, he just got some great footage. And they made it into a fabulous film called, as you said, Ski Champs. And it was a, a film that influenced the following ski filmmakers like Warren Miller. Oh, yes. Uh, in subsequent years. Can't help but think of Warren Miller after his passing, of course. Of, of course. Let's wrap up with what it was like to ski with your dad. You said that late into his life, mm-hmm. the family would go skiing together. Uh, was he still teaching you things about the slopes later he in life? Was, what he communicated was a love for sliding. He loved to slide. And I and my brother Dave, who was a better racer than I was, um, uh, you know, we, we picked up that love for sliding from him. And that was the great lesson. And just technically, we just watched him and, you know, he couldn't help but absorb it. Do you do the dipsy doodle? Absolutely. You okay? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> thank Absolutely you. in the trees. In yeah, the trees. You bet. Hopefully not into hot dog stands. But thank you so much for being with us. <laughs> Oh, thank you, Ryan. Bye-bye.
I've been speaking with Dick Durrance Jr. of Carbondale about his dad, the legendary skier Dick Durrance Sr., who led Team USA in the first alpine skiing at the Olympics in 1936 and then went on to be incredibly influential in skiing as a resort sport. We'll post photos of the elder Durrance in action, dipsy-doodling at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.